I'm Jim. I'm Joe. And I'm Eric. And this is Speaking of <laughs> Wait, Joe, what was that? Oh, oh, that? That was just my pet peacock. Remember, I'm in India. No, no, really. What was that? It really was a peacock. They totally sound like that. Admittedly, I don't have a pet one, but I am in India. I recorded that the other day at the park. Oh, I forgot you're still in India. That, that sounded like a child being strangled. Yeah, it's not pleasant. Um, but here's what's pleasant. I'm in India because I'm starting some new work that is about women's mental health. And it really doesn't have all that much to do directly with race or history. What? The, the, throw it out. Read it. <laughs> so why am I talking about it on here? I already knew that there had been stuff around racialization and caste during British colonialism. So I started looking into it more before I left. And it is incredible, actually, how much India intersects with the stuff we've been talking about, even just in our past episode. It turns out India was a really crucial player in the development of racial science. And this was a reminder to me of how narrow our views of race and racism are in the U.S. We recognize we have a problem, but we also think we invented it, at least most of the time. We've even been sort of talking about it in that way on this podcast. It's mostly been Euro-American history. So, so today I want to talk about India's position in the development of race and science in the 18th and especially the 19th century. And I'm hoping that we'll be able to follow it up with a second episode in a couple of weeks that brings this discussion about race and caste in India into the present. We're going to start out here with the British colonial period because that's when race science was brought to India. But we have to throw out a disclaimer right away. People sometimes, understandably, object when discussions of Indian history do start with British colonization. And that often happens in Western history books, if, you know, if we discuss India at all. But this is the point at which race science in India gets underway with the influence of the British. Yeah, so India has a long and deep history prior to any European contact. Over two millennia ago, the Maurya Empire spread as far as Alexander the Great's conquest the Maurya dynasty lasted for centuries, and then the Mughal Empire in the 1500s up through the beginning of the colonial period in the 1700s was a total world superpower. That's the empire that so impressed Francois Bernier. And we should stress that the British were latecomers, even for Europeans. The British East India Company established itself in India in the mid-1700s, which was around the time that the British were flexing their muscles against the French in North America. But the Portuguese, well, they'd already been there for two centuries. And the Dutch and the French and the Scandinavians, they were establishing churches and military forts and naval stations and trading posts. Even without this European influence, India was and still is remarkably diverse. There were as many as 1,500 languages spoken over the last 50 years, though many have died out recently. One of my colleagues who's worked here in India for a long time said something to me the other day that I think captured this really well. He said that we talk about America as being this melting pot, but it's really India that ought to get that title. Everyone I know here speaks at least two languages, usually more. So people will speak one language at home and one language at work, and then they'll attend religious services in a third language. Aside from the cultural diversity, India is geographically really diverse too. As a physical anthropologist myself, I've had to teach about the monkeys that are native to India for decades and how they are adapted to the different ecozones, ranging all the way from high-altitude mountains to dry Sahara-like deserts to dense equatorial rainforests. Let's just stress that Indian diversity is really incredible. What the British contributed really was just an attempt to get a handle on this diversity to figure out how to operate within and ultimately how to try to replace indigenous systems of social grouping in the country. 
And when the British attempted to exert control over the local populations in, of India, starting in the 18th century, they did what was easy for them to do. They analogized those systems of religion and class and race that they found in India to the ones that they were most familiar with back home. I, I want to interject one more history thing. Is that okay? Yeah, I guess. <laughs> Once the British began to expand into India in the mid-1700s, the Indian economy became super important to the British economy itself. In fact, historians have estimated that by about the time the American colonies began their rebellion in the last quarter of the 18th century, British revenue from India was rocketing upward and would soon become about a quarter of the entire British imperial economy. But it turns out that by 1782, the British were busy fighting the French and the Spanish and the Dutch empires at the same time. And they were quelling a coordinated rebellion all across Ireland as well as the nonsense that was going on in their colonies in North America. Dang. So the fact that the British were able to fight a world war and still strengthen their grip on India and the Caribbean and even make additional inroads into Asia made losing their 13 colonies in North America basically feel like a win. <laughs> so happy Independence Day, America! Woo! We were an afterthought to this whole project for Britain. India was where the real action was. And I want to point out, if you want to know more about the global history of the American Revolution, I recommend this book called The Making and Unmaking of Empires, Britain, India, and the Americas, 1750 to 1783 by a historian named P.J. Marshall of Oxford. Um, so the British Empire did manage to retain India after the conflicts of the 18th century, but it had to struggle to establish its rule and to keep it. Um, the forms of social difference that they found in India often just didn't fit the understandings of social difference that they brought along with them. There's a lot of historical evidence to suggest that systems like caste that already existed in India were not nearly as rigid nor nearly as important in Indian societies prior to the extension of British power. The British elevated caste as an object of study and then racialized it as a way of creating a seemingly objective shorthand for categories that would be useful for colonizers like Who's more likely to be a criminal or to be rebellious or to be loyal? Who's more likely to make a good bureaucrat? Who would be best suited to serve in the colonial army, et cetera, et cetera? Speaking of caste, Joe, I'd like to know more about how that system works. Can you say some more about it? Yeah, sure. This will be even more important in the next episode, so I might as well introduce it now. So in the most basic sense, the caste system consists of four major groups. Brahmins, who are the priestly caste, Kshatriyas, who are the warrior caste, Vaishyas, who are the commoner or the business person class, and Shudras, who are the laborer class. These are described in the ancient Hindu texts as arising from various body parts of Purusha, the cosmic man whose sacrifice created all of humanity. Castes were occupation-based descent groups that were found primarily among Hindus, although it's true that Muslims in India also have their own caste-like systems. The hierarchy here exists along axes of religious purity as well as along axes of political and economic power. So the most religiously powerful and spiritually pure of the groups are the Brahmins, but the people who are historically most sort of politically and economically powerful would have been the Kshatriya class and sometimes the Vaishya class because they were the ones who held lots of land and often ran for political office. And so political and economic power did not lay in the same place as religious power. And that's one way in which Indian social classification systems were unique. And then below even the Shudras were the untouchables or pariahs as the British called them. And I'll, I'm going to talk about them a lot more in the next episode. So I'll just leave it at that for now. So where did the British start to try to figure India out? 
Well, one facet of their curiosity was figuring out how all these different people got to the subcontinent in the first place. I guess that makes sense. I mean, we've been talking about how important origin stories are to human groups and how important they were to other thinkers in the Enlightenment at basically the same time. In, in fact, we already mentioned Bernier's connection to India, but it's also worth noting here that other major 18th century thinkers we talked about in our last episode, like Blumenbach, were also in contact with members of the East India Company and speculated about how South Asians fit into the human origin story. Blumenbach, for example, puzzled over paintings of Indians that were part of a collection that he was studying to understand human variation. He wrote about the paintings, classifying one Hindustan, his term woman, as a Caucasian, but two Indian men in different paintings as Mongolian, clearly showing that he didn't have it ironed out in his head who or where these people came from. And I was even thinking that perhaps this might have been part of Linnaeus's classification project, maybe even before Blumenbach. Is that true, Jim? Yes, absolutely, Eric. This was a natural extension of the Enlightenment era fascination with science, the whole philosophical project of documenting, classifying, and understanding all the natural world, including humanity. There are certainly connections to be made there, but the first major person that I think we ought to talk about is Sir William Jones. Jones was a judge who was working in Bengal in the late 18th century, and he first proposed what eventually became known as the Aryan invasion theory. Whoa, Aryan invasion? I thought that was a Nazi thing. We'll get to that in a future episode when we talk about the Third Reich. But this Aryan invasion was two centuries older, and it was the theory that Indo-European language and culture spread throughout India during this kind of one-time Big Bang violent incursion of these guys called Aryans into the subcontinent. They were supposed to have been a lighter-skinned Aryan origin group as opposed to the darker-skinned Dravidian residents who were already there and who had been there longer. So the Nazis were originally from India. That explains, <laughs> well, nothing. Almost, <laughs> almost nothing, yeah. Jones was an interesting guy. He was part of the colonial government, of course, in its pretty early days, when the ruling body there was the East India Company, and its capital was Calcutta, which is why he was in Bengal. And like many of the British people who would eventually serve in the colonial government, he was profoundly fascinated by Indian society and became a sort of self-styled expert of ancient India. He learned Sanskrit, and he read the Vedas with a professor in India. He studied Hindu astrology. He founded the Asiatic Society of Calcutta. And the key to his thinking is this. He was the first to propose that European and Indian languages might have a common history. And that actually turned out to be correct. That's why we have this history of calling them Indo-European languages, right? That's right. And that's why we have words that we share between them. Like, for instance, did you know that the words pajamas and cummerbund are actually Indian words? Say it ain't so. It's true. Anyway, so, so the observation that Indo-European languages had a common root was where Jones got the Aryan invasion idea in the first place. He figured that people who spoke Indo-European languages in North India must have come from that same light-skinned ancestor group who peopled Western Europe as well. Okay, so was Jones right about this? Is the Aryan invasion basically the story of how it went down? No, no, it's never been proven. And in fact, there's a lot of evidence against it. 
We don't know everything about the peopling of India today, but we do know that after the first modern humans settled in the subcontinent back around 60,000 years ago or so, there were waves of migration and invasion and empire building subsequent to that that swept back and forth across the subcontinent over tens of millennia, resulting in the remarkable diversity that we see in terms of culture and language and religious beliefs and even genetic variation that persists in India today. Yeah, that's right. In most circles, the whole Aryan invasion idea isn't taken seriously anymore. And in fact, it's been really heavily critiqued as being a reflection of racial ideology rather than some accurate statement about the peopling of the region. You know, it's probably no coincidence that in both cases, a white race was seen as coming in and subduing a local darker colored population. Uh, So this is another one of those cases of uh, the victor gets to write history. So the British must have thought of the Aryans kind of like they were British. Yeah. And pretty early on, the British grabbed onto this idea that the reference group against which others in India ought to be compared were North Indian high caste individuals, the ones they perceived as being most like them because they tended to have somewhat lighter skin, they tended to be more educated, and eventually they were the ones who made their way into the British colonial bureaucracy. That idea or that that tendency can be traced back in large part to this whole theory of Aryan invasion. In spite of the fact that it's basically a load of crap, the Aryan invasion (laughs) idea has proven very sticky. Yeah, it's a sticky idea. Also sticky is that Aryan-descended North Indians and Dravidian-descended South Indians must be fundamentally different and at odds with one another. So I imagine that once the British settled on some sort of an explanation for how they thought the Indians had gotten to India, the Aryan invasion idea, then they probably turned to start doing the thing that we would call racial science, right? they begin to apply your, Joe, what is it? Your step measuring thing? Is this step two? Yeah. You listen to the B-side. B-side. <laughs> yeah. Little, little product placement. So, yes. There's a great example of what I called in that last B-side episode, the measuring step in India in the 1830s. So, in Scotland, 1833, Edinburgh, seven skulls just appeared. They didn't just appear. They were the skulls of convicted criminals who'd been executed under the direction of Captain William Sleeman, who was an up-and-coming British officer assigned to an area where there was a lot of what was known as thuggy activity or banditry. The thugs were groups of highway robbers who insinuated themselves into groups of travelers, gained their trust, and then supposedly strangled them and buried their bodies in mass graves. Ooh. Often they were kept on retainer by major landowners explicitly for the purpose of pillaging people traveling through their land holdings. And they were an interesting group. Their association with each other was more than just banditry. They worshipped various patron goddesses. They were very secretive and very insular. They lived together. And Sleeman was convinced, like many other people at the time, that thugs ought to be considered a distinct race and that maybe criminality was inherent to their nature. This reminds me almost exactly of what the British at the time said about gypsies and even the Irish. Totally. It's, of course, also where the term thug comes from. So, I mean, this was a load of crap. In reality, from what we can tell, there's been a fair amount of scholarship done on who thugs were, and they appear to have come from a wide variety of backgrounds, many of them not even Hindu, despite the fact that people like Sleeman saw their goddess worship and assumed they must be a Hindu caste. And as far as we can tell, the main thing pushing them into the, into the gangs was poverty, as well as the fact that this thug-landholder relationship was a practice into which people could enter. 
But Sleeman was responsible for what was essentially a war on terror devoted to wiping out thugs for the purpose of sort of social betterment in India. And it was supported by a series of thuggy suppression acts in the 1830s. These were pretty brutal acts, and there was this intense interest in trying to substantiate some racialized nature of the group, in part to justify the effort to wipe them out. Dr. Henry Harper Spry of the Bengal Medical Service was part of this effort, and to that end, he removed the heads of these seven executed thug men and sent their skulls to Scotland to be analyzed by the prestigious Edinburgh Phrenological Society. Ooh, I think there's an important reason why they were sent to Edinburgh in the 1830s. And I think there's an even more important reason why they were sent to the Phrenological Society. Did you know the skulls are still there to this day, by the way? But I think we're going to have to leave that to the side because we have a future episode about the Scottish Enlightenment. And I want to talk about the thuggy heads in that episode. All right, fine. I'll leave it till then. Anyway... The British interest in caste and social grouping was already kind of sinister with the whole shipping heads around the world thing, right? That is pretty dark. That's pretty it is dark. dark. It took on an even darker valence after the Indian Rebellion of 1857, which is also sometimes referred to as the first war of Indian independence. Ooh, rebellion. Tell me more. So it started north of present-day Delhi in the army of the East India Company, where many Indians served, and a bunch of Indian soldiers got tired of British rule. They staged a mutiny, and it spread throughout the Plains region of North India, both in the military and in civil society, mostly among peasants. It lasted about a year, a lot of people died, and it shook the British regime to the core. Afterward, the British enacted direct rule, meaning that Queen Victoria was appointed sovereign over India directly, and that's when the period called the Raj came into being. Remember, before that, it had been the British East India Company ruling the region. So when direct rule was instated, some Indians were placed on British government advisory councils. And these tended to be the most anglicized, English-speaking, lightest-skinned, most educated, upper-caste landed aristocracy. Again, in other words, the people that seemed to the British most like themselves. I imagine that further reinforced the significance of caste hierarchy in India, right? Yeah, so this is one of those points where scholars often argue that caste became a lot more rigid and a lot more important than it had been before. The rebellion renewed the British interest in learning as much as they could about their subjects so as to prevent things like this from happening in the future. And there were all kinds of groups with which the British had come into very little or even no contact at all. And these were the groups that they feared the most and tended to racialize the most. That included people like the thugs, whom we've already talked about, but so-called tribals or aboriginal peoples of central Indian forests were another really good example of this. They're still really highly racialized and marginalized in India today. And I'll talk a lot more about that next time too. Okay, so I feel like I've already learned a lot, but we started talking about British bureaucrats and that makes me think that we're going to talk about H.H. Risley. So are we? I was just about to say, then a guy named Herbert Hope Risley entered the scene. Yay! Boom, boom, boom. Oh, there's a villain Ooh. of our story today. It's Risley. He was the one who most rigorously applied the scientific techniques that were being developed in Europe to try to distinguish races in India. Yes, absolutely. So Risley had been serving as the magistrate in Bengal starting in 1873. That's the same state that Jones, the Aryan invasion guy, had been working in almost 100 years prior. And like Jones, Risley had developed this keen interest in the tribes and groups that were under his jurisdiction. He knew that the practice of caste endogamy, which is marrying strictly within one's caste group, was very common in India. 
And he firmly believed that because of this practice, there must be these sort of pure types of Indian caste groups that had been unadulterated by admixture. Ooh, In fact, it sounds like Mendel. It does. In his 1908 book, he wrote, quote, here we have before our eyes a society in many respects still primitive, which preserves like a palimpsest manuscript survivals of an immemorial antiquity. In a land where all things always are the same, we are justified in concluding that what is happening now must have happened very much the same way throughout the earlier stages of human society in India. Uh. <laughs> yeah. I mean, snarky comment, insert here. Snarky comment. So Risley was, he was really fixated on caste and its corollary racial indicators. That book I just mentioned, which was called The People of India, describes caste as the cement that holds together the myriad units of Indian society. So the government asked Risley to conduct an ethnographic survey of Bengal starting in 1885. And that was an idea that came about in part because of the impulse to avoid future rebellion after the 1857 war. This survey collected data on lifestyles, dress, foodways, folklore, and it used a bunch of anthropometrics to measure physiology. That was the first time Risley used the nasal index as an anthropometric measure. Wait a second. Wait, we're not going to measure the whole skull anymore? It's just the nose? What kind of weird anthropometric measurement is that? The nasal index is a measure of the ratio of the nose's height to its width. That's just weird. It, it, is, it is a very weird measurement, but this index was invented by Paul Broca and was used by his student, Paul Topinard, in France in the late 19th century. By this time, the cutting-edge science of the day was moving away from the bumps-on-the-head phrenology that had been used on the thug skulls and moving towards the new science, the evolving science of craniometry, and Topinard was heavily involved in this. As I mentioned in the first episode that we have in this series, my mentor, Paul Baker, was a student of Ernest Houghton, who was also a big fan of anthropometric measurements, having taken a whole series of standardized techniques from Broca in his French lab. So in my first field work, I had to measure thousands of Samoan noses to calculate the nasal index. Weird. It is weird going up to people with calipers and sticking them on their noses, too. <laughs> This, <laughs> this was part, it was easier to ask them about their sex habits than it was to measure their noses. <laughs> this was yeah. partly, partly human adaptation project because it had been demonstrated in the 1920s that ethnic groups from cold, dry climates have longer and thinner noses, while noses of those from warm, humid climates tend to be shorter and broader. This is a pattern of environmental adaptation that is known as a result of this study as Thompson's nose rule. That's the measurement, that nasal index that Topinard was so excited about. Is it true what I've heard that Topinard was like one of the last holdouts for polygenism well into the 20th century? That is true. That was a concept that he inherited from his mentor, Paul Broca, along with a fascination for using all these different kinds of skull measurements, that craniometry that we were just talking about, to create indices that would somehow demonstrate clear differences between races. So anyway, back to India. <laughs> so, so Risley thought this nasal index was the key physical feature that should and would vary along with caste. Okay, we're back in India now. Got it. We, we are. We are. He employed Topinard's nasal index to try to essentially diagnose people by race. So he could diagnose someone as Aryan if they had a nasal index of such and such amount, whatever. He took that idea not directly from Topinard, but from another guy, Friedrich Max Mueller. 
Mueller was a German, but he lived most of his life in Britain as a professor at Oxford. He studied Sanskrit and he read the Rig Veda and he did this specifically looking for references to Aryan features because he too was interested in the whole Aryan invasion idea. And he thought maybe the ancient texts might hold some clues to it. Mueller noticed a reference or two throughout the entire long book to the term anasa. It's a Sanskrit word that means lacking a nose. And he concluded that nose length might be this feature that could be used to sort of unlock and diagnose who's Aryan and who's not. Mueller and Risley talked about this in private correspondence quite a bit, though Mueller never made the opinion known very publicly because he was pretty concerned that it would make him look, well, you know, racist. If only our current president shared some of that public sensibility like Ooh. Mueller. Yeah. So if Risley's like our Darth Vader for this episode, then Mueller's more like our German, our German Darth Vader. Is that <laughs> um, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. If that helps you. Two Darth Vaders. <laughs> so <clears throat> anyway, Risley worked on ethnographic survey of Bengal when other British bureaucrats were doing linguistic surveys. And you've got to hear how they did this. They circulated the prodigal son parable for translation into local languages. Wait, from the, from the Bible? Yeah. So they, so they took that parable written in English and they gave it to bilingual people who spoke a bunch of other languages and asked them to translate it into those other languages to try to get a handle on sort of linguistic structure. But they had to change the cow to a goat since people are not so down with butchering cows in India. Oh, you mean at the end when they kill the fatted calf, except in this case, they have to kill the fatted it's goat? A, it's a fatted goat, yeah. But the point here is that both the ethnographic and the linguistic surveys that were going on at this point involved some pretty non-representative samples. The linguistic folks had to talk to people who were bilingual, of course. And the ethnographic samples were sometimes very, very small samples of the supposed populations that were being captured. Kind of like 23andMe sampling strategy, now that I think of it. Ooh, that was a sick burn. <laughs> um, so despite its foibles, the Crown saw this Bengal survey as so successful that they decided Risley was the man to serve as the commissioner of the first Indian census, which happened in 1901 and is super important for our story of sort of racialization in India. Okay, so when Darth Vader divided up, I mean, when Risley divided up the cast, <laughs> how did he do it? He identified 2,378 cast groups that That's he thought- That's a lot of cast groups. Right, and there, I mean, in reality, there are probably more if we talk about sub-cast groups, which I didn't even discuss when we were talking about major casts. He thought that those 2,378 cast groups could be classified and collapsed into 43 races. 43 which is a lot. And then he thought those 43 races could be further collapsed into seven main physical types. Indo-Aryans were on one end of that sort of seven group spectrum and Dravidians were on the other end of it. And he believed that intermediary groups were the result of either admixture between Aryans and tribal groups or Aryans and other groups that came in at various points. He believed firmly that castes varied with nasal index and that social position also mapped onto that, with the highest caste having the most Aryan blood and the pointiest noses, and the lower caste having less Aryan blood and flatter noses. So it's the usual flat noses are inferior, pointy noses are superior stuff. Right. And, and also, of course, the whiter races are superior to darker races stuff. Risley latched onto this theory of Aryan invasion that Jones had developed, and that was part of what motivated him in this whole enterprise. In fact, in 1891, there's this fantastic quote from him. You want to read it, Eric? <clears throat> I have 
it here. It is believed that tall, fair-complexioned Aryans entered India from the northwest and slowly fought their way, conquering and colonizing down the valleys of the great rivers. At an early stage of their advance, they came into collision with a black, snub-nosed race who are partly driven away into central and southern India, where we find their descendants at the present day. So, I mean, that's like the Aryan invasion theory verbatim. And Only a century later. Risley believed that this was why Brahmins were at the top of the caste system. And in fact, when he created that long list of 2,000-whatever castes, he didn't order them alphabetically for the census. He ordered them in terms of what he perceived their social precedence to be. Wow, he was really into this stuff. Yeah. And in order to really make this whole caste as race argument, Risley had to go so far as to even redefine what caste meant in Indian society. It had always been talked about in terms of occupation-based descent groups. So there are caste groups in India even today that are laborer castes or ear-cleaning castes. Or oh, I don't want to be in that caste. But you definitely want to meet that caste because Indian ear-cleaners are amazing. <laughs> I'll take your word for it. <laughs> it's a caste that is is slowly losing its profession. Anyway, so Risley was so convinced of this equivalency between caste and race that he redefined from his position of authority in writing what caste meant to Indian society. He believed that instead of being occupation-based, which is what everyone, including Indians, had been telling people for hundreds of years at this point, he believed the caste system was about race. I yeah, yeah quote. read it. Read it. All right. Quote, community of race, and not, as has been frequently argued, community of function, is the real determining principle, the true causa causans of the caste system. So let's review. Risley felt that caste slash race was the glue of Indian society and the key to unlocking it. Yep. Okay, and Risley believed that this wasn't just true in the present, but also millennia ago when caste and race conflict was the watershed event that created Indian society and the whole system of social stratification. Exactly. Risley was sure caste was actually race. Yep, right again. And Risley did a bunch of measurements to try to prove this and, of course, found exactly what he was looking for and then wrote a whole book that re-explained the logic of caste entirely through the logic of race. Is that right? Yep. Yeah, you got it. A couple of scholars have even referred to Risley's work as the apotheosis of scientific racism all over the world. I can see why. So India is a place we don't usually associate with the development of ideas about race. In fact, I never taught about race in India in all the years, all the decades I taught about race. Yet it turns out India saw some of the most extensive testing of scientific race theories that took place anywhere in the world. I think this is a really good reminder. I mean, in, in America, I think we have this pretty myopic understanding of race science as involving mostly European Americans and then imported Africans. And in fact, some really pretty wonderful histories like Ibram X. Kendi's Stamp from the Beginning or Nell Painter's The History of White People. They tell the story of race and science as if it were an especially American story. I don't disagree that in this country we actually pay far too little to the long history of race and science in America. But I think that what you're trying to show us here, Joe, is that our understanding needs to grow to look at the whole huge global story of race and science. Yeah, absolutely. It surprised me how much that's true when I first started digging into this literature. And I think, I think we're done for today. That was a lot. It was dense. That was a but, lot. But, 
we're definitely going to do a future episode where we pick back up with the question of what's happened to racialized ideas about caste and skin color in India. Have they gone away? And we're even going to maybe talk about Bollywood a little bit. Yay! (laughs) (laughs) That sounds great, Joe. Uh, We also have to talk more about phrenology and the Scottish Enlightenment. Scottish Enlightenment. Uh, (laughs) It's not Scottish, it's crop. If it's not Scottish, it's crap. Lots of stories still to tell. Until next time, I'm Jim, the physical anthropologist. I'm Eric, the historian of science. And I'm Joe, the cultural anthropologist. And you've been listening to... A peacock. (laughs)